The Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, written and read by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter 14, Mont Solos. Jurton Mont vaulted the body of a guardsman his father had speared as his sister, running faster, caught up with him. Just who was that guy, she panted, glancing back over her shoulder. His name's Shah. He says he's a doctor. Another strangled yelp came from the head of the column. The prisoners were straggling out into a long line, Jurton bringing up the rear, as the less physically fit among them lost their first wind. Some of the people from the original cell had had the foresight to open other doors up and down the dungeon hall. As a result, the fleeing crowd was now quite a rabble of merchants, local royalty, government advisors and officials, various family members, priests and clerics, and representatives of the general public swept up into the hand of Carr. The yelp from the front was followed by a thud of body hitting floor and a muted berserker battle cry. Jurton's mind, which had been projecting a soft traveling string motif at him, insistent in its runs of rapid notes and propulsive rhythm, gave a quick skip at the barely melodic barbarian yodel which had sounded suspiciously like the voice of his father. He blinked, grabbed mentally at the stabilizing sound of the strings, regained his stability, and plunged ahead with only a momentary hesitation. "'Where is Shah, anyway?' he asked. "'He stayed behind. A magician showed up. It didn't look too good.' "'He stayed to fight a magician?' Jurton said. "'That didn't make much sense. Shah had said he wasn't a magician himself, and if he wasn't, he couldn't possibly last long. "'I hope he's okay. You sound worried about him.' Yeah, well, he's a pretty strange guy, but I'd have been really sunk if he hadn't popped up. What about you, his sister said. I never thought you'd show up. I didn't think I would either. Jurton was still scared to death, but beneath that was a low thrill of accomplishment. Whatever Dad had said, he'd been doing pretty well so far. Dad seemed even madder than usual about it, though. Is it just him being the way he usually is, or has he got some extra problem this time? Oh, you know Dad... Another prostrate trooper rolled past beneath their feet. They caught him in an ambush. One of them held a sword across his neck, while another one pounded him over the head. He's mad he didn't go down fighting, take ten or twenty of them with him. Looks like he's sure trying to make up for it now. Well, Tildy said, you know Dad. The corridor forked ahead and widened to the right. The line of staggering people made the turn like a single creature, perhaps a giant tunnel-traveling worm. Jurton and Tildy followed. "'You know this place better than me,' she said. "'Where are we going?' "'If Dad wasn't so mad, he'd head for the armory and clean it out, hang a dozen swords and maces and stuff over his back, then hit the barracks or the docks or some place like that. But when he gets this mad, how does he feel about Carr right now?' He was talking about Carr a lot in the cell, wanting to tear his arms off first and make him eat them, that kind of thing. What I thought, said Jurton. I think he'll be going after Carr directly, no matter who's in the way. He's going to get to Carr through here? They had entered an area of storerooms, with wooden doors opening from a central sorting floor. Corridors and staircases snaked off in various directions. Yeah, I think I remember... The music in Jurton's head abruptly shifted mode, the strings grew harsh, and a transformation to harmonic sevenths gave an air of urgent danger... Watch out, he yelled. Something's gonna... Oof! The large woman in front of him had stopped short, craning her neck at something up ahead, and Mont had barreled into her going full speed. He spun back and fell to the floor. 
The line of moving people ground to a halt at the renewed sound of metal on ringing metal from up at the head. New boots pounded behind them, too. Tildy whirled, Jerton struggling back to his feet. The lead elements of a new bunch of troopers charged around the fork in the hallway, bellowed, and thundered in their direction. Everybody scatter, Tildy yelled, grabbing Jerton's arm, and yanked him toward the closest door next to them at the side of the room. The door had been almost completely shut, but not quite, since it was slightly warped in its frame. But as Tildy's shoulder and the hurtling front of Jerton's reeling body plowed into it, it opened quite definitively, launching them both headfirst into the room beyond and into the room's contents. Jerton plowed through a rack of shells, bounced off a wall, pushed off the wall, and slammed back against the door just in time to fling it shut. He fumbled for a lock, a bar, something to block the entry. The darkness in the closet was broken only by the irregular door frame and the rays of light that trickled through it from the room outside, along with the pandemonium of sudden cries and bashings and running footsteps. Gildy, he said, are you okay? I, Jerton, watch. Jerton spun around. Through the gloom and clatter, he saw a rush of motion. A large hulking shape was rocking down toward him. He threw himself sideways. The massive shape teetered through one of the rays of errant light from the door frame, revealing itself to be the case of shells he had fallen into and upset. Jerton buried his head against the wall as the giant case slid in a collapsing mess against the door. Gildy? Jerton? Vroom! The door shuddered under an impact from the other side. The shelves merely creaked and collapsed further. Jerton was lying in a mass of crunching wood and small, delicate objects, his unfortunate landing zone and his mad leap out of the way. They only cracked and snapped additionally as he struggled up. Fortunately, the mass of heavier objects falling from the shelves had mostly missed him, inflicting nothing more than glancing bruises and scratches. We've got to get out of here, he said. With a groan and a loud rattle, the outline of light around the door flashed again. I don't think getting out is going to be the problem, Tildy said. This mess won't keep them out for long. You're okay, aren't you? Jerton said. He had been fumbling in his belt looking for his carrying pouch. His sister managed a half-hearted giggle. Okay, sure I'm okay. We're only pinned up here like pigeons in a coop waiting for the foxes to break through the... Then Mont found the pouch and what he was after inside of it, a lighter flint. He struck the flint. The momentary spark that flashed out showed a fairly small closet, now filled with wreckage, a dust-covered sister, and the former contents of the fractured shelves. Mandolins, lutes, fiddles, a twisted harp. Underlining the point, a string snapped with a quivering twang somewhere deep within the pile. Other cabinets stacked against the walls of the closet held other instruments. As Shaw would say, Jurgen thought, there is a certain air of inevitability about this. The door shuddered again under the weight of energetic bodies, and one of the panels in the top half began to give way. A new jagged slash of light spilled on the far wall. Through the crack in the door, parts of shoulders could be seen. Do you have any ideas? Jerton said. I'm looking for a sword or a club or something useful. You'd better do the same thing. Okay, so you don't have any helpful ideas either. In that case, there's something I want to try. He pulled the lid off one of the crates and rummaged inside. Will it help? One board in the door panel snapped cleanly away and sailed across the room. A brawny hand reached through it, flailing ineffectually. It might, Jerton said. He held up a flute and squinted at it. The other way, Tildy said. Huh? You hold it the other way round. Oh. 
Jordan reversed the flute and put it to his lips. More hands were madly ripping apart the upper door. Their entry was clearly a matter of seconds. I hope this is good, Jurton, Tildy said. Me too, he mumbled. The music in Jurton's head, which had been holding at an expectant quiver, added a sudden snarl of trumpets and the rolling patter of a snare drum. He put his fingers over the holes on the body of the flute, blew into the mouthpiece, and froze. His body froze, and his arms in their raised position, and his eyes staring downward at the flute, but a high, clear sound had appeared in the air, and his ears were locked around the sound, hearing it to the exclusion of all other senses, his mind stuck on the single thought of the sound, and the breath coming almost on its own from his chest. And as his breath whistled through the flute, his mind realized slowly, very slowly, that it was actually working. It had not, after all, gone blank. The thoughts were forming and circulating like leaden snails, but they were indeed alive. He was awake. And there was music not only in his head, but also, for the very first time, outside of it as well. Church and Mont took another breath and blew again, and this time, even more amazingly, his fingers began to dance on the body of the flute at the ends of his frozen arms. Music, true music, burst out, harmonizing and rounding with the music in Jurchen's head, a mid-range fluid melody running against the insistent scales of the strings and the exulting blaze of trumpets. He wondered how it sounded to the listeners, probably weird, because most of the music was really in his mind. The flute sound would be tantalizingly incomplete without the rest. He concentrated on his eyes. Haltingly, with a deliberately leisurely pace, they began to roll up. His fingers, unconcerned with any irrelevant actions elsewhere in the body, seemingly plugged directly into some hidden musical control center, kept up their flying leaps back and forth along the flute. Then the doorway came into view, the splintered upper door, the large gaping hole where the whole wooden panel was smashed through, the two guardsmen halfway through the opening, the two guardsmen, the two guardsmen draped across the lower lip of the opening, their arms trailing downward, their heads lolling, their faces blank. Jurton's suspicion was growing stronger. He managed to turn his head just a little and marched his eyes around to the side. Tildy, too, had slumped backward to the floor, a dazed expression on her face, her fingers curled limp and loose around a mallet-shaped piece of wood. Jurton gradually closed his eyes and concentrated on listening. Over the magnetic rush of the music, like a whirlpool of sounds still trying to suck him back in, was... nothing. No running feet, no bashing swords, no cries, no moans, nothing. Wow, Jurton thought. Not too bad. It seemed as though everybody in earshot was paralyzed, knocked out, shut off, just the way he usually behaved when music hit him. Right behind that realization came another that he didn't like nearly as much. His fingers were really starting to hurt, and the flute was heating up. Whatever this ability was, its power was beginning to take a toll. Jurton didn't know how much longer he could keep playing. If the effect on the people around him was anything like it was on him, though, they might start to wake up as soon as the music stopped, but if they did, they'd be pretty groggy. They wouldn't be accustomed to the situation, either. That would give him a bit of time. Maybe he could buy a little more time than that, too. Jurton focused on the music, willing it to go faster. His fingers, already racing, began to fly. A repetitive pattern in the strings moved a tone higher, then higher than that, picking up an element of added insistency. He began to note the approach of a crescendo, 
A wisp of smoke curled up from the flute. Then, suddenly, but with an air of finality, in a paroxysm of muscle-wrenching glee, a blast of virtually concrete pandemonium shot out from under Jerton's hands and across the room and out around the hall. The flute burst apart, shattering into tiny shards. A surprising silence echoed. Then the silence was broken by the single crash of Jerton sagging backward into the shelf of twisted mandolins. He was exhausted. His fingers were swelling. In the light from the hall, he could see the red and purple colors of developing bruises on the tips. They hurt, too. Jerton put out a hand to support himself and jerked it back after only the barest touch, wincing at the tenderness. An electric tingling, of which he'd only been vaguely aware, was fading, making itself known by its absence. There was also the sharper pain from the flute's splinters driven into his fingers and his face around the lips. Jerton's catalogue of woe was abruptly interrupted by a groan from the doorway. One of the guard was stirring. Jerton gritted his teeth, shook a few protruding splinters loose from his hands, and staggered to his feet. Tildy was breathing, but seemed deeply unconscious. He eyed her wooden club, chewing his lip. The club had been the supporting upright from one of the shelves, not much of a weapon, really, but on the end of it was a heavy iron fitting. Okay, he thought, but I sure wish somebody was around to see this. He knelt and wrapped his hand around the club. Yow! It felt like he'd rested his fingers on an active griddle. Jerton yanked his hand back, then heard another gurgle from the trooper in the door. He forced himself to reach out again, settled the club into the crease of his palm as far away from his fingertips as he could get, and lifted the shaft of wood into the air. I can do this, he thought. Really, I can. The soldiers in the door were stirring, but that was about it. Jerton looked down at them for a moment, set his jaw, and swung the club, then swung it again. He tried to tell himself it actually wasn't that bad the second time. The door was so battered that Jerton was able to kick it off its hinges and out into the hall without using his hands for leverage. He spent another minute bashing the remaining dozen troopers in the hall over the head. Then he returned to the instrument closet, gingerly selected a new flute from the crate, and slipped it into his belt. More than anything else, Jerton wanted to tear off looking for Carr himself. His father was not one of the groggy people scattered around on the floor. Carr was undoubtedly where he'd gone, and who knew what kind of trouble he'd already gotten himself into there. Jerton figured that if his newfound ability was going to be good for anything, it could at least show Dad he could be useful to have around. Maybe Dad would even accept that you didn't necessarily need to know how to hack people up with a sword to be a productive member of society. But he couldn't go, not now, not yet. It wasn't just his hands. He could force himself to use them if he really had to. In fact, he already had. The problem was something else. It looked like at least ten or fifteen minutes before Tildy and the other former prisoners were back on their feet, and when they woke up, they'd still have to deal with the soldiers. That would have been okay if only Tildy or the prisoners could be relied upon to wake up first. But of course they couldn't. Jordan didn't want to out-and-out out kill the troopers, and he couldn't use his hands well enough to tie them up, so there was only one alternative. He'd have to wait and keep an eye on things himself. With a sigh, he cleared a space with one foot, settled to the floor, and leaned back against the wall. Carr wasn't the only major thing nagging at Jerton's mind, though. Where was Shaw? Coming next, Chapter 15, Big Trouble. <laughs>